Hi, I'm Sean L. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Nicole Thurman is an actress, writer, and the co-host of the podcast The Scroll Down with Marcella Arguello. Originally from Kansas, Thurman studied acting at the University of Kansas before finding her place in comedy through the second city in Chicago. She served as a correspondent on Comedy Central's The Opposition with Jordan Klepper, and you might also have seen her on such shows as Netflix's Grace and Frankie, HBO's A Black Lady Sketch Show, or NBC's Superstore. You currently can hear her as the voices of Jabberjaw, Squidly Diddley, and Dee Dee Sykes in the HBO Max series Jellystone, and spot her in picture frames and flashbacks on the NBC sitcom Keenan. Her recent writing credits include the 2020 Primetime Emmy Awards for Jimmy Kimmel, IFC and AMC's Sherman's Showcase, HBO Max's Hot Dog, Fox's Let's Be Real for Robert Smigel, and the Peacock competition show Baking It for Maya Rudolph and Andy Samberg. Thurman sat down with me to talk about how she found her own point of view through her various gigs, as well as her growing social media presence. If you like this conversation, please consider subscribing to my Substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com so you can read bonus commentary on this episode, as well as more comedy news and insights. Thanks in advance. And now that that's out of the way, let's get to it! Nicole Thurman, uh, last things first, congratulations on so many things for, I mean, I know we're still in the middle of the pandemic. I, I don't dare say we're near the end. Who knows when the end will be. Right. But for as long of a pandemic as we've had, your career has been on fire. Oh my gosh. Thank you. It's very nice of you to say. I, I'm such a, like, I don't even know. I'm such, I get so tunnel vision that I'm just like, oh, it's been okay. But no, it's been good. It's It's been good considering it's been a pandemic, yes. <laughs> well, I mean, let's be real. That's what. That's just one of the shows. Just one of them. Let's be real. It was just one of the shows. Robert Smigel's puppet parody, which if you blinked, you missed it on Fox. But it was there. Uh, you also have written on season two of Sherman's Showcase, which is uh, a great IFC musical showcase. Yeah. You've been on screen on both Grace and Frankie on Netflix mm-hmm. uh, and pictured, sometimes heard, but mostly just pictured on NBC's Keenan. Oh, yeah. I was I was on screen for that, too. Just two very short scenes. <laughs> <laughs> and then you, you're also a voice in the new HBO Max animated series Jellystone. Yeah. And you've been working on various other projects. What? Yeah. Is that, is that why you're back in New York now, working on something else? No, actually, New York was a really interesting thing where I just came here on vacation in June, and it was so nice to just not be in L.A., honestly. And I used to live here, and just being back in New York and seeing some of my friends I haven't seen in forever and my family, I was like, you know what? I'm going to sublet here for a little bit. And so I just got an apartment, and I've been subletting here for a few months. I'm going back next month, though. So, okay. yeah, I'm just hanging out. No work. <laughs> You you much prefer autumn in New York to autumn in Shawnee? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I guess so. I haven't been in Shawnee for autumn in, I don't even know, a million years. But, yeah, I, I, I think autumn in New York is pretty magical, to be honest. So, yeah. So I know this might be seem 
too trivial. But did we ever figure out what's the matter with Kansas? (laughs) You know, I I did not. I did not personally when I was there. I wish that I had had time to figure it out. (laughs) I was lucky enough to, I feel feel like, avoid uh, most of the things that were wrong with Kansas. So... (laughs) But that was that's the title of a book that a, a journalist wrote in 2004 when yeah. I guess you were there then, right? I wasn't, your, wasn't I there then? State? Yeah, I was, in, I was in school then. So, yes, I was there still. Right. Yeah. I don't know what was wrong with Kansas. I mean, it was, yeah, because it was something about politics, right? Voting, laws. I don't know. It's about, I think it was about uh, shattering our, pre, whatever preconceived notions we have about flyover states in middle uh, america yeah and, you know your your homeland middle yeah america. i do feel like there's a lot of that like a lot of times when i tell people i'm from kansas i feel like it used to get more of a reaction but i think people are trying to be kinder now and more open-minded but it, people used to be like you know oh my gosh it must be so weird for you seeing a city and i'm like no i mean i'm from the suburbs just like anybody else like kansas is definitely a lot of small towns but it's also just like a suburban chill life and yeah, I, I, I uh, it was uh, interesting growing up there, but I, I liked it. I liked it. The University of Kansas does have a pretty decent tradition of, of actors coming out of there. Yeah. When you went there, were you thinking of yourself in the Paul Rudd mode or the Mandy Patinkin mode? Mandy Patinkin mode. Because I remember when I was in college, I was way more into drama and theater. And I thought, because when I graduated college, I moved to Chicago. And I always thought that I would be doing more like um, on stage drama stuff. Uh, so yeah, I wanted to be more of a Mandy Patinkin type. But I uh, soon found I soon, I got plucked into the comedy world. And then that fit way better. <laughs> now, also, I also discovered that Nikki Glazer Another Nicole, but she's a Nikki. You're uh-huh. she's a Nikki with two K's. You're a Nicole with two C's. That's right. That's right. And as a Sean S E A N, I find it very important to get these things right. Yes, it's very important. Did you happen to cross paths with Nikki Glazer? No, she went to University of Kansas. She transferred there. Yeah, I did not know that, and no, so we never crossed paths. That's so interesting. I think yeah. she was probably there before I was, but um, I didn't know that. That's so cool. Yeah. Where's she but, from? Do you know? Is she from a, is she a Midwest she's from, person? She's from St. Louis. Oh, cool. Yeah. I did not know that. <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> you're you're aware that Barack Obama has some Kansas heritage. Right? Yes. Topeka, right? <laughs> I just know his mom's from there. I think she's from Topeka. But he didn't actually spend any time there. No. He was Hawaii, I, right? Or <laughs> any other place if you ask a Republican. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, he definitely not. Yeah, not from here. Um, But yeah, like you said, when you went to Chicago, you weren't initially expecting to be a comedic actress. No, I really I I think I don't know if it's just growing up because it's like I did um, some improv and some sketch in high school of all places. We had like a, my high school theater program is actually pretty good. And so like my senior year, you had to audition to get into this like comedy troupe. But, but, but other, other than that, my experience with theater and with acting had mainly been seeing drama and like, that was to me real acting. And so I had not planned. I had never like, my goal was never to work in comedy. Like a lot of people that moved to Chicago that I met at second city, that had been their whole goal for life. And I was like, I didn't even honestly know that was much of an option. I never considered it until I kind of 
stumbled upon it. You were thinking more dramatic theater companies, of which there are yeah. a few in Chicago as well. Oh, yeah. I was a like I interned at Steppenwolf and that was like what I wanted to do was perform with Steppenwolf someday and be in that company. And when I had uh, interviewed for the internship at Steppenwolf, I had also interviewed at Second City because I had heard they were another good theater in Chicago. Like, that's honestly all I knew. And um I ended up going with the Steppenwolf internship because it was more of a program and more structured. But then the woman at Second City was like, if you ever want to maybe, you know, work for me for a few hours a week and take a free class, let me know. And I was like, of course, that would be great. So I took a class. And then after the class, she was like, if you ever want to maybe audition for us, I know it's not really your thing, but you can give me a headshot and like, maybe you can just try out one time. And I did. And then I ended up like, getting jobs with them. And once I started working with them, it was like, that was the path. And that was the path that made so much sense for me too. Okay. Yeah. Well, one of the things, you know, when the pandemic happened and then George Floyd's murder, Mm -hmm. both of those things combined had a lot of people in the comedy community reassessing how well we've been doing in terms of like lifting each other up or pushing people down. Yeah. And I know, Second City kind of fell mm-hmm. as part of that. What was your whole perspective? Like you said, your your first introduction was very nice and very pleasant. And yeah. you were almost kind of recruited yeah. to become And it was interesting because City. I was recruited by um, Deanna Griffin Irons, who is the outreach and diversity program leader. At least she was mm-hmm. at the time. I'm pretty sure she still is. But so it was very much like in that vein of like diversity, inclusion, it was an interesting experience. Um, I feel very lucky to have worked with Second City. So it's like I I completely 100 percent credit them for having myself having for me having a career to this day. I don't think that I would actually have the career that I have had it not been for Second City. Um, I think working there was my first taste of like how limited comedy and just even Hollywood or entertainment, how limited the industry can be in its thinking of people of color. Um, I think other people maybe felt, I don't know what their experiences were, but from my experience personally, I felt welcomed into Second City, but I always felt like, like I was told at one point by a, a, a certain director, like you have no point of view. And I was like, well, that's crazy because it's not possible to be a human and have no point of view. Like, that doesn't make sense. (laughs) But I realized quickly, like, what they meant by that was, you know, and then the next thing they followed that up with was like, you're black and Jewish. Why don't you talk about that? And it was like, well, I don't know. You're white and a man. Why don't you talk about that? Like, it doesn't, you know, that doesn't need to be. Uh, on the surface at all times, in my opinion, it doesn't need to be what you lead with. And it doesn't, it shouldn't be your only way into a room or your only way for people to talk to you. Um, And so I felt like that was the experience I had that was frustrating was that I felt like they wanted to kind of box people in. Um, It's like, they want to, it's like, this happens a lot. I think too, honestly, people in, in any entertainment and TV, anything, they want to include people of different colors or uh, backgrounds or sexualities or whatever it is, but they want you to fit their narrative of what that looks like. And that is something that I'm probably never going to be able to do because I think, 
I think now it's changing and adapting and people are getting like a little bit more hip to the fact that like a black woman can like uh, heavy metal or, you know, a black woman can like rock or whatever. There's they're realizing there's more of a spectrum. But back then, especially, it was very like limiting. And so I think a lot of people of color felt frustrated uh, by the fact that they had to act and be a certain way in order to get success at that theater. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like they're hopefully more open-minded now. I think that they've obviously had like such a shakeup and so many people calling them out that they have no choice but to be. Um, but yeah, it was, that was the, that was the only thing I did find frustrating about that experience. But I mean, I think that that experience was a microcosm of the industry as a whole. It can, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not necessarily all that different. Um, once you get out into the outside world of the bigger industry in Hollywood either. I think that that's changing. And I think people are more willing to listen now. And like you said, because of especially the events of last year, um, they're more willing to reassess how they, how they deal with people of color. And like, they're, they're definitely listening more, but that was definitely when I was there, a very frustrating aspect to it. I think. Right. You remind me that there's been this prevailing sense and of course, I say this coming at it as a straight white male. Mm-hmm. But even even from my perspective, I've seen so many people take the word diversity mm-hmm. to just mean, oh, we have this box and this is yeah. where all the diversity goes into the diversity yes. box. Yes. And the diversity box is somehow not yes. the same box as everybody else. It's in its own box. Oh, yeah. And never the boxes meet. No, they had, yeah, and they established, they, they started programs where they would teach classes to people of color, and it's like, that's great, but, like, why not just, if you, if anything, give them, like, a scholarship. They don't need their, you don't need your own program, necessarily. And also, I think that diversity, a lot of times, means, like, oh, we'll just throw a person of color in there, but they don't, nece- they're not necessarily sensitive to their needs or their experience, and they're not necessarily ready to listen to those experiences and include it. I think it's, a uh, that's the thing that, that, that tends to be missing is the actual inclusion of people um, and letting them have whatever their uh, opinion is. I've always found that like, obviously boxing people in is, is not going to help or, or making them feel like you're filling that, that slot. (laughs) It's not going to do anything for anyone because it's going to make the people who feel like you stole a slot from them angry. And it's going to make the person who's in that slot feel like they have some kind of like spotlight shining on them for no reason when they're just as talented and can easily just collaborate without it having to be about that. Right. I'm also a little, dare I say a little, cautious about the changes in Chicago in particular because even though the second city Andrea Alexander is out all the other old guard is either out or dead Uh, at Improv Olympic Charna has let go of of IO but the new owners are all like venture capitalists or so weird so I'm a little cautious about what that's going to be like if it's going to be any better yeah I really haven't been following along since that Andrew left and since those people took over, but yeah, it's really strange. It feels like super corporate now. So I'm interested to see how it's going to go moving forward. And also, I don't know. Part of me thought like, I don't know. There's a part of me that always kind of has a problem with someone stepping down when it gets like really hot and the spotlight Mm. is turned on them. I'm kind of like, it would have been cool to, I mean, I liked Andrew. I only met him a few times maybe, but he was always nice and chill. 
But I think it, I would have appreciated more like seeing him stick with it and seeing him say, what changes can I really make? And, and um, like, I'm willing to like sit in this and make some real change as opposed to just being like, okay, well, you know, everybody's getting on my case. I'm going to go. I thought that was a little bit of a strange move, especially because then you put a black man in as the interim um, person in charge. And it's kind of like, well, you know, first of all, they're not going to just solve all the problems just because they're black. Second of all, it's a lot of pressure to put on someone after you kind of scamper off into the night. <laughs> so it was, a little, it was a little bit weird. But yeah, I'll be interested to see what happens moving forward because it is, I don't know, it seems very corporate now. So yeah. I don't know, maybe maybe it'll be a good thing. But yeah, it definitely seems like what's going to become of the art, you know? I don't know. Yeah, what you just said reminds me of like Andrew stepping down instead of sticking around to solve the problems. It's like when George Bush left everything for Obama to, to clean up. Right. Well, look at this black president is not, everything's trash and yeah. not realizing, well, it was trash when we got here. Yeah. It's like he left the trash at the front door <laughs> and then the guy's like, well, now I'm holding it. Cause I have to, and I, yeah, and you're getting all the shit for it. And a lot of times too, it's like, then people are seeing them. They're just like, oh, he just got the job because he's black. And it's like, no, he's a very smart guy. He was, he's was he been working for Second City for years. He had the skills. But, yeah, it just is like a it, – it puts that person in a really weird position for sure. So before Second City, you were a, a dramatic actress. Mm-hmm. Second City changes that completely. Mm-hmm. When you, so when you leave Chicago in, like, 2015 or so – what, how, how did your expectations of your career change even at that point? Well, I think uh, it was an interesting transition. I was very lucky because of working at Second City that I got a manager uh, and an agent or a manager uh, who, you know, had those connections to like bigger industry types and jobs and things like that. So I felt very like tuned into that world already. But it was interesting for me because I had primarily done stage work, been on stage almost all the time. If any cam- any on camera work I had done was mostly commercials, maybe like standing in the background of an episode of some other TV show that shot in Chicago. Cause back in the day they didn't like, even in 2015, they weren't shooting a lot of shows in Chicago. So there wasn't a lot of TV work there. Um, so it was interesting. Cause then I had to really pivot to, okay, how am I going to work in TV? And, you know, kind of having to like learn that skill set that, I'm still learning of how to act on camera because you get so used to just kind of playing super big and loud when you're at second city. And so it was a lot of, uh, it was a lot of adjusting to just be on TV really. But then you end up getting this job in New York with comedy central, the opposition with Jordan Klepper. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, that's another complete pivot for you, right? Because, Because now you're suddenly on camera as a comedian under your own name, but then playing a fake persona like Jordan was and like Stephen Colbert before him for the Colbert Report. Mm -hmm. That's got to be so confusing, but also kind of make you question what you want to be doing. Yeah, it was really interesting because it took... 
it was it was like yeah this interesting it was the same way with second city like when i started at second city i had all of the skill sets except for improv i had never improvised before i worked at second city um but it was like i had all these skill sets like playing music singing being a funny person i had the skill set but i had never known how to kind of use that and then when i started work when i started on the opposition it was the same kind of thing like i had the comedy skills i had this weird, like, I've always kind of been a good host and good at reading teleprompters and good, like, reading straight to camera and things like that. Um, and so it was like the skill set was there, but I had never really written all of the, all that much, created my own material. I didn't really write that much, and I didn't do a lot of political stuff. So it was like this whole new world that I had to develop that skill set. And also doing field pieces was something I honestly didn't even know I was going to do until the job started. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have to interview people. So yeah, it was a really like, it was a big adjustment. And even just the mindset, because we were all playing conservatives and I'm not a conservative by any stretch of the imagination. So even having to wrap my head around how to kind of think from a conservative's point of view, but make it obvious that I'm a liberal and I'm parodying and I'm, you know, satirizing this kind of culture. It was really a, a whole new way of thinking. It was challenging. It was definitely a big challenge. How did it change what you wanted to look for next after that? Oh, I think, hmm, that's an interesting question. How did it change what I wanted to look for? I think, um, in a way, which it's interesting because it's like I got I say like, oh, God, Second City said I had no point of view. But it, it helped me to like advocate for my own point of view more um, by making it so that when I had to pitch ideas, they had to come from a specific place of like what I wanted to talk about, how I wanted to talk about. And I had a lot of control over how it was presented. And I think after the opposition, I realized how much power I had. Because I think a lot of times as an actor, especially if you come up, even though I had worked at Second City for like five years consistently, I still didn't really realize how much power I actually had until after the opposition. And I didn't realize how like, I didn't know how to pitch. I didn't know really how to write. I didn't know how to like speak to, to my point of view. And so I think that that helped me advocate for myself more and also understand the importance of creating my own material and writing. Like I, I wrote a pilot and I would start, I started to write things just more in general because I realized that like the more I put out of my own stuff, the more people are going to know who I am and like recognize me for what I want to be recognized for. And so it's like, even it, it even started me making silly internet videos and just tweeting and just doing things that were going to get me more attention that were coming from very much me as opposed to like looking at a script and just kind of going with whatever, was there <laughs> right you know? well i mean i i for one uh i love your instagram stories thank you can't get enough of them can't get enough of them <laughs> thank so you. yeah like when you're talking about like showcasing your point of view by doing your own things that's yeah that that has to have been a big part of it is yeah is understanding how you relate to to people one-on-one -on -one or one to thirty-five thousand. yeah depending on <laughs> on the platform exactly it was really it really helped me to be like this is me unapologetically because i think you get used to 
or you, sometimes you worry so much what other people are going to think or you want to make sure you make everybody happy and don't make anybody angry. And I definitely don't want I would never, you know, my my Internet persona or my, my personality just in general is like I don't want to offend people. But I I like to show people like the real me and relate to them in a way. And I think that, yeah, a lot of my comedy comes from interactions that I have on the street or, you know, just, you know, interactions with people just in general and people can find that relatable and then they enjoy it and follow me because of that, I think. And so that was definitely, that was definitely something that came up for me after being on the opposition. Um, Cause I really, you know, when the show got canceled, it was, it was canceled after only one season and I didn't know what I was going to do because I had never had a, I had never been on a show regularly like that and then had it get canceled. So I was like, what do I do now? Do I go back to waiting tables? Like, how do I, what am I doing with my career? And it became like, post on the internet, tell people who you are, be yourself, have fun. And then it ended up, you know, being really rewarding because it got me into writing. It got me into just a lot of different paths that I hadn't, a lot of, it gave me a lot of opportunities that I wouldn't have had if I had just been kind of waiting by the phone for someone to call me. Uh, to give me a part. <laughs> it's interesting. You didn't, your first thought wasn't, oh, I should fail upward. Yeah. That's, because that's what, I think that's a typical like mediocre white guy thing to do is like, <laughs> I'm going to take this experience and I'm just going to level up. Yeah. <laughs> I know I should be leveling down, but I'm yeah. going to level up because. Yeah. yeah I feel like, uh, <laughs> you. I feel like maybe as a black woman, you don't get to think like that. I don't know. I don't know why well, it was like yeah, that. I think women in general, you know, we're, we're, what is it like when uh, women are applying for jobs, they won't apply for a job that they don't have every qualification for, right. whereas a man would typically go for it, um, even if you only had like one qualification. And so I think it's just that kind of thinking of like, okay, shit. I mean, I still was like, you know, shit is bad. I don't really have a job. I don't know what to do, but I'm going to find a way to... Um, make something happen for myself because I'm just sitting at home and I'm bored and my savings account ain't gonna last forever you know so it's like it was a lot of that thinking uh, and it wasn't like me sitting around thinking uh, the next job will just come because I deserve it because I can fail down right it was like it was like no 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 fail up it was more like let me figure out how to make something happen for myself or even not failing upward but something that I've heard from talking with enough people from Hollywood yeah. is that there's this idea that even if you've only sold us like every step of the process, like somehow qualifies you for the next step, even if you didn't succeed, yeah. like I sold a script, but the script didn't get picked up. But that means that I can now pitch for, I can now get a bigger development deal. And mm-hmm. every, like you just, it is failing upward in a way. Yeah. Which is such a weird form of capitalism yeah it was weird because i never i always i felt like when the show ended i was like nobody knows who i am like the show didn't really do much didn't do what i thought it would do for me and so i was i didn't necessarily feel like that like i was like oh my gosh i might go back have to go back to square one because i had also moved to new york for the show and so then i had to move back to la and i was like oh my god like casting directors don't remember me nobody's gonna remember me it ended up working out, but it was like, it was rough for a little bit there trying to kind of figure out where I fit in. One of those, one of those uh, gigs that you got in the meantime between opposition and the pandemic was hot dog. Oh yeah. <laughs> 
But yeah, the hot dog was an interesting experience because that was like, that was, that was my first writing job. And that was a job that Robin Thede, who is the executive producer, she's on a black lady sketch show. She put me up for that job with like a few other women. She was the other host of hot dog. Uh, and she, so she put me up for that job. And the way I got that job was through tweets. Because Neil Casey, who's the head writer for that show, he was like trying to figure out which person he would pick that Robin had given him a list of. And he read my tweets and then he was like, I liked your tweets. Do you want this job? I'm like, yeah. So, yeah, that was an interesting. It was a cool job. It was a cool job. And then when the pandemic started uh, for Americans, the pandemic started in March 2020. I don't know when it started for you, but in America it was March 2020. Mm -hmm. What was your initial plan did you have one no I didn't have one it was really crazy because like like I said at the beginning of the pandemic I was still very much just an actor who made internet videos sometimes and tweeted and that was like all I didn't really and I didn't know what to do because I had savings I had been kind of already living this unemployed slash freelance working sometimes lifestyle. So I, I didn't necessarily like lose a bunch of work. I was just kind of like, okay, but where is the work going to come from? Because if we can't go on set, cause that was at the time we couldn't be on sets, everything shut down. I didn't know what I was going to do. I was, uh, I was chilling. And then I was kind of like, but wait, what happened if in like maybe three or four months, I won't be able to continue to live in my apartment. I'll have to move somewhere. I'm not going to move back home. I don't know what I would do. Um, so I didn't have a plan, but yeah, because of honestly, because of Twitter, because of the internet, because of people that I had met, I ended up starting writing. And I also was very lucky to get a voiceover job right before the pandemic started. It lit, we literally only recorded in the studio together one time on March 10th. And then the rest of the time was all either remote recording or recording by ourselves in the studio with everybody else behind a big glass wall. So I, it, yeah, I had no plan is the long answer to that, but I, I ended up kind of like, I guess you could say falling into a new career in a lot of ways, voiceover and writing. And did Jellystone happen in part because you already had the pre-existing relationship with the folks at HBO and HBO max? No, or did they, just, they, they didn't so. hear you in the writer's room and go, Who's that voice? That voice. We want that voice. I wish. <laughs> I wish it was that easy. Sometimes I'm like, you guys, heard me. you hear my voice enough. Does anybody want to use it for something? Right. Um, but no. Uh, right? You'd That's think. how little I know about voice work. I just figure someone hears your voice and they go, that would be perfect for this. Well, you would think. I mean, come on. But uh, no, that was just a regular audition. It was just a regular audition. I do voiceover auditions all the time. You sit at your house, you record it, you send it in, and then, you know, you send in a hundred. And then I don't know, maybe you book one, maybe, but voiceover auditions are hard, especially in LA. I feel like they're in an animation. They're very hard to get. And so this was the first animation job I've ever had. Um, it was, I, I thought it was only going to be a couple episodes, maybe, you know, maybe more, but I don't know. I was, and then it ended up being this like huge job that literally lasted me through the entire pandemic we were recording. It was amazing. And then Grace and Frankie, did you film that during the time when 
the pandemic was okay or no we, we no we 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 shot that in January and February oh. of 2020 so like okay. right before it yeah and we shot i think that the the four episodes that are on Netflix right now they shot those and then they had to shut down and they real they shut down for a long time because everybody on that show is older so yeah right so you got crazy. you got that in under the wire yeah i did but one of the i mean one of the things I, that's great about all the credits that i mentioned in the beginning is well not that they're all great stuff yeah but that you manage to be both coexist as a writer and as a performer yeah yeah like you're not just in that one box because you know we mm-hmm. talked about the diversity box but there's also in show business this um compulsion mm-hmm. to pigeonhole somebody and go oh you're a writer or mm-hmm. you're a performer but mm-hmm. to be able to do both seems rare unless you're writing and performing your own material yes i think that's very true because i do think a lot of people don't go back and forth i have a couple friends that truly they are like they've always been my inspiration ashley nicole black and yasser lester they've always been huge inspirations to me and i always kind of watched them and admired how they could do that And I was like, that would be the goal for me is to go back and forth between writing and acting because acting, I mean, acting sucks sometimes, you know, like it sucks because it's so hard and inconsistent. And like I said, you can be on TV for a whole year on something like The Opposition and then the show gets canceled and then you're just taking guest starring roles here and there. And that's only like one or two days of work, maybe a week, you know, it's not, it's not this consistent work. And so, um, Yeah, I feel really lucky to have found a way to manage that. I mean, it's not always easy. It's crazy because every time I take a writing job, that's when acting stuff gets really busy and then I get totally overwhelmed. But like, it does feel so amazing and so much more stable for me to be able to always have an income from either one or the other. And because sometimes writing is kind of a nice way to just step back and still be super creative and collaborative, but you don't have to like, it's not like your face and your body are for sale. <laughs> it's it's like you get to just work with your mind and just like put stuff out into the world, but not have so much pressure of being present, like presenting it to everyone. Right. How, yeah. mu- how much does doing one job inform or help you learn about the other one? Like oh say, like say you, you recently worked uh, behind the scenes on a show, baking it. Yeah. That's got who? That's Maya Rudolph and mm-hmm. um, Andy Samberg. And Andy Samberg, yeah. For Peacock. Yeah. So you're writing for them. How much do you learn about performing just for by writing for them? So much. First of all, Maya Rudolph is my idol. My everything. <laughs> I have always said like my main goal was to work with her. I wanted to work with her as an actor, and I still believe that I will. But like working with her was like it, it was like I literally got like tears in my eyes the first day we were shooting because I couldn't believe it was real. And that never happens to me. I was just like, I can't believe I'm working with my idol. Um, but yeah, like writing has taught me so much and it's, I, it's completely changed the way I work in everything because being able to like sit back and um, watch people on camera, how they act, how they receive notes, how they receive your jokes, how they interact with the crew. Um, has been so eye-opening and also um, not with baking it, but I've had jobs where it's like, you know, you pitch a joke to someone and they're like, I don't like that. Why would you, you know, 
why are you trying to make me say that? And they act, and it's almost like they take it in as like, uh, you're trying to, to make them look bad. Mm. And I, I used to think like that too as a performer. I didn't realize they're not. They're really trying to make you look good. You know, no one wants, everybody wants you to do well because that means the show does well and that means they get more seasons. And, um, I don't know. I just feel like I've, I've learned so incredibly much about how to be like collaborative on set as a performer, how to, um, how to, you can just, you just see more of like how things really work when you're behind, behind the camera as opposed to in front of it. Um, so it's really been such an incredible experience and I'm really glad I got it. Cause I think like, I don't know. I, I always want to be really, I want to be fun to work with. I want to be somebody that people want to work with more than once. And I think sometimes when you're just like tired on set or you don't know what's going on because you don't have much control over the writing or whatever it is, you, you can, you can get kind of like confused or like get a, maybe an attitude or whatever it is. But now it's like, I feel like because I know more of what's going on when they're making the show, I, respect it more and I think I have more fun when I'm on set and when I'm there for those super crazy long days so I'm so glad that I got that opportunity well I for one I'm glad to have the opportunity to talk to you you've been an absolute delight yes. uh you're fun um Thank you you, ha- you definitely have a point of view I don't care what they told you <laughs> in you. Chicago 10 years I ago so yes. <laughs> I think so too your point of view is real and it is spectacular. And thank you. Uh, Nicole Thurman, thank you so much for doing this. I really thank appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was post-produced by Alex Brazell at Showbird Studios. The music was by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. If you enjoyed listening, please check out my Substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com for transcripts, bonus commentary, and expert analysis about comedy, show business, and more. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.